This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is Staging the Nation. In it, we look at the difference between indigenous rituals and the imperial performances of the frontier that overtook them. And illustrative of what has been lost is the music of traditional Native American cultures. Just a moment of watching the daily activities of our national public life reveals that performance is consequential, far beyond the confines of the playhouse. In fact, ritual, performance, and theater foster and embody the myths of our culture, the assumptions we hold, often without even being aware of it and have done so for longer than our country's existence. What are these assumptions, and how did they come to ground the fundamental ways we live our lives? To find out, we must look back to the earliest stage of America, a stage on which the country's myths were first performed, as well as critiqued through performance. Our guest and guide for Staging the Nation is Doug Harvey, author of Theater of Empire, Frontier Performances in America. Harvey's book is born out of academic research he came to as a kind of second life, garnering his doctorate at age 50 after being in the building trades and working in oil fields for 15 years. In his book, Harvey suggests performance culture was a vehicle for imperial transformation from the start, and in his re-examination of the history of the American frontier, sheds light on the differences between the theater of empire, performances concerned only with transaction, often predatory, and that of indigenous cultures, performances centered around cultivating relationships with other humans and other than humans. We set forth in our first segment to pinpoint what theater of empire means, how it created a culture much different than the culture it dominated, destroyed, and eventually replaced in America. Along the way, we discuss its imported and detached nature and discover the assumptions about life and the land it instilled in American culture, which still drive the way we live our lives today. Perhaps a quick example, a seeming benign cultural performance popped up on Facebook today, the Shipshawana Corn Maze in Shipshawana, Indiana, which was, quote, created with the goal of quality family fun in the traditional American way, a safe and relaxing event for the whole family that gives the next generation an understanding of how corn is grown and used in our food today, unquote. And now, Staging the Nation, tonight on Interchange. I think it's near the end of your book, it may even be at the close of the book, you say, uh, performances create assumptions and assumptions coalesce into mythologies that govern the behavior of society's members. So it's clear you've got uh, got an idea in mind in, in here about how performance uh, creates or uh, supports and, and projects forward the culture's ideological assumptions from the beginning. Uh, that's kind of uh, where you begin. So that's give us a little bit about what you mean by theater of empire. Well, obviously, it's a play on the actual theater stage, the the space where a performance takes place. And this was something that I had to work out, and it took me a while, uh, a couple of years even, to uh, make peace with myself about what is a performance and what is actually theater. Hmm. I had to narrow things down to, okay, is war, for example, is war going to be a performance? Hmm. And, um, and I finally decided no. Um, and in the book, um, there is a uh, 
a place where I clearly draw the line with the uh, uh, Native Americans game of uh, Bagot away, and which is what we call lacrosse, and uh, where they're playing lacrosse and they use the game to um, infiltrate a British fort and uh, take it over. And so I draw the line when people start getting killed. <laughs> so so it's the, the performance became uh, reality, I suppose. Uh, the, the the lacrosse episode was an interesting one in the book simply because um, you get a little bit about the the idea of how you can make use of a game to create this subterfuge, right? So it's like like uh, occasionally we, uh, we come up uh, against this idea of the the white, I guess, imperial cheat. Uh, for lack of a better, I'm searching for a better term, but basically uh, there's a way in which the, the game becomes a subterfuge, uh, not fraud so much, but a way to to make a play on what is clearly an enemy. Right. And um, uh, it makes me think of the opening of the book, mm -hmm. first page. Well, I had the book, and I needed an introduction. Obviously, that's usually how it works. Mm -hmm. And and so um, I thought about, you know, what was one of the catalysts, and it was uh, the uh, the line in the sand. You know, remember the first Gulf War, and then um, the actual Desert Storm uh, later, where this uh, huge uh, performance culture came onto our TV screen. Mm -hmm. To explain to us how Saddam Hussein was the ultimate evil, right? And I just, you know, well, you know, this is—I'm looking at how this happened in 1750. How did this happen in 1800? Right. And it's the same kind of thing. And so the, uh, and so if, I think if you were going to use war as a, um, and, and call it a performance, it could be a performance against the enemy, but also a. Um, used as um, a propaganda tool mm -hmm. support for the war. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, uh, so theater and performance, then theater being uh, a theater of operations, we've, we've decided in some sense that this is more about performance on the stage, performance in uh, music, in dance, you go to circus, etc., things like that. Uh, but then what do you mean by empire? There's, there's obviously an ideology at work here as well. What is the theater of empire then? Uh, well, empire, I define um, fairly early on in the book of uh, meaning that a uh, hegemonic force exerts its power onto a, uh, a native indigenous peoples uh, for the primary purpose of obtaining resources and usually the secondary purpose of uh, obtaining markets. And it's a very general uh, term, but I think it's one that is accurate. And then the theater of empire is the space, and that's um, whether it's a stage or whether it's around a fire or, or wherever, it's just that space. Mm -hmm. And uh, where empire is justified, uh, performed, and um, often, and I, I would say even usually, uh, with um, a measure of deceit to get people to come in on the side of, of empire. Mm. So the, it's a, a centralized conceit, then, that there is such a thing as empire. It has to come from somewhere, right? Right. And um, and I think it is uh, is something that is uh, 
operates on deceit and um, and at pretty much every level. Uh, so I'm I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum of Professor uh, Ferguson and others that. Uh, it's Niall Ferguson. Is that how, how yeah, that? that's her Neil or Niall. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, that uh, argues that it's all on the side of the angels. You know, right. making the world better. Yeah, uh, you, you need a giant uh, uh, jackboot to make uh, small wars go away. Yeah, whip the <laughs> you know whip the hoi polloi in the line. <laughs> So, um, so what you do, uh, I think, throughout the book, though, is is to try and show there is a colonizing perspective and a Western or Westernizing or Northern white European perspective that that comes into an indigenous culture. And what you do is show how these things are different, or how that you looking at one can tell you more about the other, and tell you about the the ways in which certain peoples view their their space, their geography, as well as their their landscape and and what they are in it. So you've got a, a clash of cultures going on here. You've got indigenous uh, people versus colonial peoples, and so how how are we able to look at them via the lens of theater then or performance? I kind of lay down some of these uh, parameters too early on in the book, where we're talking about by indigenous. Um, is a, a culture that is fairly localized. That um, the religious icons, the uh, or, or mythology, whichever term you want to use. Um, I like the definition of mythology as uh, someone else's religion. Um, <laughs> but um, where the the forces at play in the in the pantheon of the of the mythology is are local, hmm. and and everything's local. There is there is no you know uh, Garden of Eden that anyone's been kicked out of. Right. No abstractions. Yeah. No abstractions. Mm-hmm. And um, this was a key point that uh, was brought home to me in in some of the religious studies people I met in my journey was that uh, uh, people talk about Native Americans and spirituality and historical you know historical Native Americans and spirituality where uh, these guys would argue that. Um, that these so-called spiritual forces were were actual forces of nature, and and so these are in the mythology. They're in the performances. They're central to the performances in indigenous culture. Whereas with uh, imperial culture, it's all imported, hmm. and um, not only is it imported from from uh, England or France or Spain, it's imported from the Middle East. Right. And it's been going on a long time. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Staging the Nation, a conversation with author Douglas Harvey about the ways colonial and frontier performance culture made pretty myths out of the horrors and brutality of violent imperial expansion. So you're 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 sort of combining a um, I guess a, a religious sense of performance and or and performance is interesting here too because uh, I think it complicates your definition also because I, I, you make the point throughout that the the ritual the ceremony of the indigenous has as much to do with. Uh, their dailiness of or how they understand their their very existence that these rituals are necessary in, at least to a certain point to communicate appease talk with um, praise show respect for these 
uh, other than human forces that still have reality to them. And 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 not just other than human forces, but uh, amongst you know tribal members and nation, um, members of the community mm-hmm. that uh, it's a fairly uh, formal culture, mm. and this uh, these mythologies play out on a daily basis, mm. and um, you know it's a little bit like uh, I, I think one of the mythology chief mythologies of of empire is market, right, and so where. In our society today, I'm just making a comparison. In our society today, you know, you can't sling a dead cat without hitting the market <laughs> of some sort or, or a commodity. And surprisingly, the dead cat isn't a commodity yet, you know. Right. But And so, just like a market is in today's society, you can't go anywhere without it, without seeing it, without being in it. Mm-hmm. Same way with indigenous culture, only it's not the market. It's these forces at play that you have to reckon with in order to survive. So in, in an attempt to see the, the empire and the colonizing aspect of importing a way of life, um, you can see that there's, there's no way to ground one's existence in the same way that the indigenous culture would ground it. You know, the, you're already, when you import from England in this in the 1600s and, uh, and so on, you're already importing a detached, less interested than nature, you know, uh, view, viewpoint and trying to import that into a land that is, that is peopled already with, with very different cultures. There is a difference, I think, of uh, imperial cultures behavior in the new world where the uh, places of origin of these imperial cultures England France uh, they are less um, what's the word the depredations are much fewer mm. uh, because they are um, there's an indigenous aspect to the cultures of Western Europe mm-hmm. in Western Europe mm-hmm. but when you export them to mm. West Virginia right you know, they're, it's okay to take the mountaintop off. Right, right. Yeah, you're set free from that uh, that responsibility. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so you really see this, and in Latin America, you know, you know uh, Potosi, you know, the, the mountain of silver, mm-hmm. uh, and that horrible exploitation that, you know, is, has occurred in those types of places that uh, you don't see that as much um, in the old country. Mm. Importing is a is a huge point because it's like it's expendable, mm. and it gets uh, solidified in people's minds, and they're believing that, and they don't know they're believing it. So they get, they go down to the river, and there's a sign that says, "You can't swim in the river because you'll be poisoned." It's a fundamental piece of their culture that did it. Right. That's an interesting thing to to focus on the the idea that uh, being detached from place. Uh, creates this sense of irresponsibility, perhaps. It doesn't matter what we do here, and that creates a culture in itself. That culture is detached and unmoored from those responsibilities themselves. So the culture has grown up detached from its indigenous roots or the people that were here, as well as detached from, as you say, Western cultures. There's no French culture. There are, there are parts or aspects of French culture. There's no English culture. There are parts or aspects of English culture. But there is there is a floating 
what emptiness that is America in some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, one of the chief aspects of in my life, one of the main players in my life, you know, in my journey has been uh, I discovered uh, Celtic music Mm. and that very much helped to get me grounded. You know, my my great, great, great grandfather was born in Dublin and my uh, great, great grandfather on the other side was born in the south of England. And so, you know, when I got plugged into that stuff, okay, this is this is the stuff. <laughs> this is who I am. Hmm. And so then I could identify more with uh, indigenous peoples in America. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I have never been, I studied Native American history and, as an undergrad, and, and I was was taken aback when the first time I was called a wannabe. <laughs> and and I said, and I said, no, I'm not a wannabe. Right. I'm I'm a wanna have. Yeah, yeah. My point being, what I found, and and we, you know, toured the Midwest playing Celtic music for years, was there is a hunger for um, authenticity. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's very difficult to find anymore. Right, and and I think you hit the nail on the head with the uh, sense of uh, uh, hollowed out. Mm-hmm. Oh, like culture is the TV. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that's what we talk about. That's how we relate to each other. I guess there's a the, there's a difference here too, too. I think food is important in in the early parts of the book. The idea that uh, the culture, the indigenous culture, revolves around sustenance. You know, there you're living on a uh, land. There's no. Uh, achieving certain goals in your life. You know, we, we have to look back on this from a, a perspective that we probably don't quite understand. There is living. It's seasonal living. You live, you know, day to day, season to season. You're just living. Um, and there's, it's hard to understand that when, you know, you and I are paycheck to paycheck and, you know, trying to think of putting kids in college or, you know, what, what, what your retirement's going to be. So that's, we are, we are living empire's dream, I suppose. It's amazing to me that um, it's, you know, dawned on me over the years that I don't have any time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that these indigenous cultures had, and this is, you know, this is uh, something that anthropologists have had to fess up to in the last 50 years. These people were time rich. Right, right. You know, they had lots of time. You plant your corn, you plant your three sisters, mm-hmm. you know, the corn, beans, and squash. You go on your buffalo hunt. And in the interim, you do things like uh, make bows and arrows, which are works of art unto themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, You make uh, porcupine quill um, moccasins, which are works of art unto themselves. Mm -hmm. And and so you can't do those things if you don't have a lot of time on your hands. This idea that the purpose of life should be to for you to develop your your inner. self, you know, to become self-actualized, uh, not to accumulate, mm-hmm. but to actualize. Mm. And that's why if you've got the rituals and your seasonal rounds um, down, you, as long as things go fairly well, uh, you won't have that much to worry about in terms of food. Right. <laughs> It's 
time for a break. You're listening to The Ballad of Davy Crockett, a modern example of a myth-making performance of American Empire. Tonight I'm speaking with Doug Harvey, author of Theater of Empire, Frontier Performances in America. We'll continue with Doug Harvey, Staging the Nation, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Fought single-handed through the engine war Till the creeks was whipped and the peace wasn't stored While he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier He'd give his word and he'd give his hand That his engine friends could keep their land the rest of his life he took the stand That justice was due every redskin band Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier He went off to Congress and served a spell Fixing up the government and laws as well Took over Washington so we hear tell Welcome back to Interchange. In our first segment, we examine the product of the theater of empire, a change in the cultural foundations from indigenous to imported, the market replacing nature as the fundamental environment in which people live on this continent. That sets the stage for our next segment, a historical look at the performances of this imperial theater that brought about the change. From the cynical simulations of Native American rituals performed by pioneers to gain trust and eventually trick tribes out of their lands, to the first traveling circuses of the frontier, to stage plays of the time, we begin to see the differences between theater as genuine communication, as in the case of the low-born dancer John Durang, and performance as pure transaction, the elitist punching-down M.O. of the high-class actor and circus manager John Bernard. King of the wild frontier. So you have this clash, obviously, of, of a culture that, that is just seeking uh, wealth for the most part. I mean, I guess we cut right to the chase. We were seeking uh, wealth when you colonize this, this culture, this land, and the idea that um, you try to make explicit throughout is that the the colonizers and the uh, companies that come in here and try to extract wealth uh, end up learning the performance culture uh, of the native peoples, of the indigenous peoples, in order to make use of it and trick them out of their, their land. Well, yeah, you're, and, you know, the edge of the woods ceremony the, uh, and those things with, uh, in the eastern woodlands particularly were, uh, exactly. The, uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the Edge of the Woods ceremony? Uh, yeah, that was well, the example I give is among Iroquois people. I think it was a fairly uh, widespread ceremony, but particularly the Iroquois Confederacy um, would send out um, an entourage to greet travelers uh, a mile or two from the village upon their approach and would take food and water and, uh, and greet them. Uh, very ceremoniously and and uh, say things like uh, welcome brothers and sisters uh, you've had a long um, hard journey through the woods and uh, we welcome you to our village our village is your village and uh, if there had been uh, uh, battles along the way and if they had lost members you know they would console them it's also called uh, there's a consolation aspect of this uh, edge of the woods ceremony and this was um, standard mm-hmm. um, routine you're doing lots of things in that ceremony you're you're taking stock of the the stranger the visitor mm-hmm. yeah yeah you uh you've got an idea who it is 
you've got an idea of what they've been through and and you're welcoming them so that uh, you won't have to there won't be any conflict with them right you're you're extending yourself to them and yeah, yeah and as, as as a in a peaceful way yeah yeah and this is made use of by the 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 british or you know the other uh, uh, particular colonizers at the time is they learn the ceremony learn the aspects of the ceremony in, in order to uh, play the game of of this ceremony exactly they would play the game they would give them uh, a wampum uh, belt just uh, as was part of the ritual that uh, you know brothers we this is an illustration of our uh, sincerity but in the case of empire the goal was to uh, cheat them out of their land mm-hmm. and uh, that was always the bottom line right um, and without exception right you you say in the book it's uh, a treaties performed as an institutionalized deceit exactly right right it's a good it's a good way to I say think yeah, I think that's uh, you know we've got plenty of that still. <laughs> well, let's let's actually skip ahead then. I think uh, let's go to this idea of the land speculation that's going on at this time, also, which is was news to me about how it happened. You know, the way in which you give acres away and in order to uh, create a, a settled space so you can go in and, and charge more money for it. This is obviously the way things work, but I didn't realize how how much it was a part of this, I guess the founding of, of, of the country itself was all land speculation and then using quote-unquote settlers to, to sort of deal with the trouble initially. Exactly, and, and, uh, and you know, the, and this was... Um, in many ways, uh, from the earliest beginnings, particularly of English colonization, this idea that, uh, well, we'll advertise uh, free land, you know, fair weather and good relations with the Indians, and get people to come over, and we'll set them up, we'll uh, promise protection and this kind of thing, and people would come over, uh, whether from the old country or just from back east, and uh, get out into the Alleghenies, for example, and find themselves uh, in the midst of an Indian war, right. and uh, often. But but that is how uh, the frontier worked. Paul Wallace Gates, you know, is doing some great work on on this um, uh, back in the fifties and sixties on uh, the confusion of the American frontier and how land speculation. On the one hand, early on, land speculators were the ones who. Uh, drove or who were motivated to get people out there to to populate the frontier and make the land worth something and then as those people were being killed then you could call on the government and I'm generalizing mm-hmm. but it, it is kind of a an accurate generalization that then you could call on the government to send troops and whether it's British or American depending on before or after the war the revolution and in that way then secure that land from the Indians and uh, and then get rich you know selling town lots and and uh, farm acreages and right so you'd have you'd basically have a treaty that stripped the indigenous peoples of land you'd then create these uh, as you say these these towns and trade routes and and this is partly again where where the the performance culture then comes in to play as well uh, you go on I think in the next chapter to talk about circuses two in particular circus uh, managers I suppose Ricketts and Bernard uh, are the two that you talk about and and how they're sort of class distinctions between the two 
Uh, yeah, big class distinction. In fact, uh, uh, John Bernard would have seen himself very much as uh, a, uh, a high theater, you know, high culture kind of guy. Uh, he was an elitist for sure, and uh, and John Bill Ricketts was uh, a circus. In fact, he was probably, uh, as memory serves, this was the first touring circus in in the U.S. And he had his uh, sidekick John Durang, um, who was a, a dancer, the greatest dancer in America. You say greatest dancer in America. <laughs> that's right. And and his book. I wish I could show pictures of because uh, he wrote this book and he drew pictures of uh, uh, of this tour. Durang did or Ricketts did? Durang did. Okay. And uh, he has a picture of him. Pictures of him. He had a performance where he would start out the performance as a midget. <laughs> and wearing a big hat <laughs> and he would go through this dance and this ritual and he would end up at the end of the performance as a black woman <laughs> uh, in blackface so oh. um but that was a uh, part of the story and he he uh did uh, rode horses and uh did horse tricks and and so by circus we're talking about uh low theater performances and uh horse stunts Mm-hmm. And uh, and Durang was really good at that. He could tap dance on a, a gallop uh, horse. And, oh gosh! Um, and so what I do is just compare how Ricketts and uh, Durang interacted with the locals on this journey, because it was no mean feat to get from New York to Albany to Montreal to Quebec, uh, and in 1793. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to like cast your. You can't even really imagine your way back to that space. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's a, a, a 10 foot wide mud road. That's the highway. <laughs> no. And, and you've got a circus and you, you know, you're going to go, you know, however far that is 700 miles or something. <laughs> right. Uh, impossible. Really? To, it's just impossible. It's just, yeah, you yeah. can't, you can't imagine it. And, and then coming after them, we have John Bernard, um, who I think it was in the early 19th century. I don't remember the exact year that Bernard did the same tour. And the people he encountered on the way, he turns into the butt of his jokes. Yeah. Because these are clearly lowlifes. Right. And, and white trash of various sorts, whether they're Dutch or, or, uh, or French or Indians or, or whatever. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Staging the Nation, a conversation with author Douglas Harvey about the ways colonial and frontier performance culture made pretty myths out of the horrors and brutality of violent imperial expansion. Well, you talk about uh, Bernard in particular as as, as kind of uh, performing a uh, or being a, a representative of politeness culture. Right. John Durang wrote a book about this tour, he also, uh, so did um, Bernard, and uh, and he goes into great detail, and, you know, when I first started reading this book, I got about five pages into it, and I thought, wow, this is hilarious, and... Because <laughs> Bernard was making fun of... of yeah, he was, he, he was a good, uh, a pretty good comedian, mm-hmm. uh, but then when you get about ten pages into it, if you are a working class person like me... You start taking offense, you know. <laughs> you take umbrage, right? Yeah, this is who are the butt of his jokes, and it just goes on and on and on. That's obviously the source of his of his wit 
is uh, it's at the expense of the yeah. working class. This is interesting. You know, you, you do make these points. You know, both both circuses are there to make money, and you make money by getting you know people to come to the circus and spend their hard-earned money. And and that's one of the interesting focal points uh, occasionally in the book too is how people respond to that in the towns, especially if they're religious or uh, if they they feel that they're being. Uh, influenced by this devil's work in some sense, you know, the stage and theater is is not good for anyone. And these two um, circuses are an interesting um, trying, you know, trying to understand a a group of people who are, uh, as you say, of Durang, or as Durang says of himself, you know, he's not uh, above anyone in this. He's he's performing for people to bring them pleasure, perhaps, or we can guess that that's what he does, and of course make money off of it. And Bernard is there uh, just to make money and right. and make make it off of them. Yeah, and and get to back to Boston as quickly as possible, and tell some stories about it, and tell some stories, <laughs> write a book about it, Ariel, yeah. Uh, Okay. And, uh, but yeah, that Durang um, case in point uh, went to visit the Konawa Indian village near Montreal and learned some of the dances they did for him. Hmm. They heard he was a dancer, so they showed him some of their dances. And then that night on stage in Montreal, he did some of those dances. Let's jump if we can. There's a couple of things that I'd really like to get to. Uh, one, only because I have a running joke with uh, an engineer here that I'll mention Melville in every every show. Yeah. Um, but you you mentioned the the play um, about Logan, um, Logan Wild Logan of the Woods. Yeah, well, so, yeah. So in Moby Dick, in Moby Dick, um, Melville calls Ahab uh, the Wild Logan of the Woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree. And it's interesting to uh, to encounter him. I know that um, uh, Professor here, Jonathan Elmer, has written about uh, Jefferson's use of Logan as well in his notes on Virginia or something like that. So uh, Logan just sort of seemed interesting to me. And you, you, you compare these two plays, one about Logan by a guy named Doddridge and one uh, uh, about Metamora, a name for uh, Medicom or King Philip. Yeah. So you compare these, these different, Logan really probably, I, I don't know if it was ever performed, and Metamora, which was a very popular play, but you, you sort of describe how one is, I think, uh, more of a critique of empire, uh, and the other one is a way in which we uh, romanticize and make use of the noble, savage idea. Right. Um, yeah, the, the play you're talking about is Logan, uh, last of the race of the Shikeli Moose, chief of the Cayuga Nation, um, is the full name of the play. And Doddridge is, uh, I think he's fairly well remembered in Ohio, because he ended up in, in Ohio. Yeah, he in this play, uh, he makes an illustration and through a dialogue where we have an army officer who, who actually uh, sticks up for the Indians um, in this uh, conversation between uh, Captain Pacificus and Captain Furious. I mean, it's a little obvious there who's who. And they're talking about uh, whether or not to exterminate the Indians, which, uh, of course, is known in history as uh, Indian hating. Indian hating. Yeah, it's also another another Melvillian uh, story. Uh, the Confidence Man has an Indian hater uh, in it as well. This is interesting, the thing that you pull out on, it's pages 144 and 145 of your book, yeah. but it kind of lays out the entire, like, arguments for why right. why Indians are bad, and then uh, the, uh, yeah. you know, the critique of... Uh, if you wanted me to, to read from that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The scene is that... Um, 
there on uh, on the edge of a battle, as I recall, and they're arguing over how to behave towards the Indians in a battle, and, and Captain Furious asks, why are the Indians coming so near us? And uh, one of the lieutenants, second lieutenant, says, they are still on their own ground. And the first lieutenant says, on their own ground, what ground can an Indian have? I would as soon apply a, to a buffalo for a right to the land over the river as to an Indian. I could prove that he marked the earth with his feet, had eaten the weeds and brushed the bushes with his tail, and made paths to the salt licks, and what has an Indian done more? That's perfect, right? That's that's, yeah. the, that's the 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 inability to improve the land means you can't own it. It's not yours. Exactly, and that was yeah. uh, that was the chief rationale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for that, and uh, and so Captain Furious then says, an Indian is not worthy to be compared to a buffalo. <laughs> he is a wolf or bear that lives upon the destruction of everything about him. He is a beast of prey, and. You know, I couldn't help think of, as I was reading that initially, how, and, and I mean, I realize this is a play and this is Doddridge writing this, but um, how often you do see people in real life accusing others of what they themselves are right, doing. Right, right. And, and then the second lieutenant says, they have at least the right of possession of the country. Providence placed them here long before the white people knew anything of this quarter of the earth. To that, Captain Furious. That sounds like liberal pap. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, and uh, some of those bleeding hearts, right? Right, right, right. Um, Captain Furious, uh, that is true, and if they had been worthy of its possession, they would have been continued in it, but they are Canaanites, whom Providence has doomed to utter extermination. Second Lieutenant, I am no Moses, and am therefore not authorized to pass this dreadful sentence upon them. And Captain Furious, neither am I a Moses, but I am a Joshua to execute the decree of their destruction. And although I cannot command the sun and moon to stand still, yet if my companions think as I do, this very day shall be long enough to finish some of them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, pretty rich there. In, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's good. Yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I think this little segment itself is enough to make me happy to have the book. It's time for another break. That last reading was from the late 18th century writer Joseph Doddridge out of a play about Chief Logan, an American Indian leader who was a friend of European settlers until his entire family was killed in a massacre. The dialogue stands as a performance that both retells and refutes the assumptions and myths embodied in American frontier culture. You're listening to De Boatman's Dance from 1843, credited to Dan Emmett of Christie's Minstrels, and performed by the modern minstrel reenactment group, the Virginia Minstrels. More with Doug Harvey, Staging the Nation, when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. That was the 19th century minstrel song, De Boatman's Dance. In our last segment, we ended with a reading out of an early American play about the Iroquois leader, Logan the Orator, whose final speech was a favorite of Thomas Jefferson. We continue with a discussion of the much more popular imperial myth of the time, and that continues today, that of the noble savage. Later, we shift to other forms of early frontier performance, including the Minstrel Act, which paradoxically was a form of class resistance to American imperial culture, while also, of course, denigrating African Americans. Finally, we'll wrap up looking at how the performances and portrayal of animals show the differences between the embodied myths of the indigenous culture and the hollow, detached ones of the imported imperial lifestyle that replaced it. Now, the final segment of Staging the Nation, our conversation with scholar Doug Harvey on Interchange. So you can get that Doddridge is, is clearly uh, uh, making the arguments and making, um, you know, furious the, the Indian hater and, and trying to offer the, the opposite, more uh, sane, I suppose, response or the, the ability to say these, these are actual people who have who live here. But then um, you have this kind of case that you point out is probably more like a pamphlet. This is a, um, a time that you parallel with uh, William Lord, Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, uh, the Freedom's Journal, that this is a way in which you try to convince people that through the, through the play itself that there is a way to, to see differently. Yeah, and, and Doddridge has left us evidence that it wasn't uh, universal, you know, that uh, that there were a lot of whites who uh, were sympathetic to the plight of the Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I, in my study of Indian history, you know, over the years, uh, have noticed there are always whites trying to stick up for, and true with African American history or, and, or, or, you know, Hispanics or whatever, there's always whites who want to stick up, but they're often not in a position of power. Right, right. And they're often in a minority. Well, it's a friend here uh, of Interchange, Christoph Ermscher, has always said, you know, that there there are real abolitionists. There weren't, you know, there were a lot of, obviously, abolitionists at the time who just didn't like slavery, thought slavery was a horrible thing, but didn't think much of black people. Uh, you know, just wanted the black people to, to move, to go on there, to mm. go back to Africa, to find a colony somewhere, which now the alt-right around here are actually saying these same things. Uh, um, but there are people that you that you can stand and see as real examples of people who are good and and righteous and and know uh, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, but they are so few and far between. <laughs> right. Right. They are so few and far between. But his point is: look, here's one. Why aren't there more? 
Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't there more? So, um, the, briefly, if you can, uh, I guess talk a little bit about the noble savage and Metamora. Yeah, the thing that that sticks with me about that story is where Metamora. It's a it's kind of imperial recreation of of uh, Metacom's war or King Philip's war, which was an actual real uh, struggle between uh, Puritans and Native Americans in in Massachusetts in New England in uh, uh, 1670, 1675. I want to say in the play though. Um, what happens is uh, Metamora sacrifices his life, um, and through the gift of a feather, um, he is essentially symbolically handing over uh, ownership of the new world to the white man. Right, right. This is the just passing on of this particular land. It's a, a, and I, I hate to do it, but it's another kind of Moby Dick time for me. When uh, at the end of of the book, you know, the book, the Pequod's going down. Tashtigo catches, um, uh, uh, I think, I guess, an eagle's tail feather uh, in uh, between his hammer blow. You know, uh, uh, hammering in the flag, I think, onto the ma- main mast as it goes down. And in a sense, you have kind of a comment there. It, it seems to me a comparable comment. You know, here is here is the passing of this this land to the sinking ship that will come afterwards. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, well, now now I got to go <laughs> reread Melville. Yeah, well, you have to memorize Moby Dick is what you have to do. Uh, yeah, there you go. Oh. Well, I wasn't doing anything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, but so no, as you say, uh, the noble savage is one of those uh, myths that there, the noble savage is no longer right. It's like there's only a noble savage when there isn't any savage anymore. Right. Yeah. And yeah, because when it's the ignoble savage, they're in the way. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Right. And yeah, let me let me read this uh, let me read this little paragraph in Psalm 147. You say the noble savage or natural man passes his virtue to the Euro-American colonists, symbolized in the gift of the feather to the virtuous Oceana, and is combined with the democratic virtue of Walter. That's a, a character in the play. He's a, he's an everyman. Everyman. Okay. Um, um, uh, democratic virtue of Walter to create a new race, the exceptional American. The exceptional American, the folkloric, mythical embodiment of virtue, would eventually be institutionalized in academe by historians such as George Bancroft, John Fisk, Frederick Jackson Turner, and more importantly, embraced by the citizenry throughout the national mirror of the theater stage, the silver screen, and television. Walter and the noble savage, hand in hand, both myths. Yeah, and the pa- passing of the of the rights to North America. Right, right, right. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Staging the Nation, a conversation with author Douglas Harvey about the ways colonial and frontier performance culture made pretty myths out of the horrors and brutality of violent imperial expansion. I did want to jump into Jim Crow real quick because, and I didn't mean to say jump, into Jim Crow, but um, there it is. There it is. Jump Jim Crow, and you you focus on uh, a performer, T. D. Rice, and I wanted to I wanted to bring it up because uh, you know it's such a negative thing in our uh, how we think of things. You know, Jim Crow laws is the only way I think of Jim Crow, and I don't think of Jim Crow as having any other meaning. And I never really even understand what Jim Crow is. And you you speak about this um, performance, uh, I guess, in blackface of. Uh, Jim Crow, but having a real uh, sort of a rebellious resistance kind of uh, way to act in that place, um, these Ethiopian delineators. 
we owe we owe W T Lehman of uh, Florida State, uh, the folklorist down there, um, for this uh, uh, realization that um, as bad as as minstrelsy was in terms of of uh, dehumanizing African Americans on the stage uh, and turning them into um, caricatures um, uh, for uh, for derision, um, there was nevertheless uh, you can find in the old uh, old texts and and layman has has done this there is an air of resistance in this and it's a it's a class orientation um that uh a working class orientation that uh through uh the the mask of black face whites could get up on stage and be set free mm. uh, not only not only physically and sexually but um, politically, that's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating, right. and uh, and so, so in the book, I include uh, some texts uh, that I borrowed from hmm. uh, from Layman that that Layman found in the archives, and uh, to illustrate the complicated nature mm-hmm. of uh, of, uh, of blackface minstrelsy. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. It's again a, fascinating, a yeah. really interesting part of the book. Um, uh, one one of the one of the verses I am like a piece of India rubber and weigh just three pounds an ounce, and the more you press me down, the higher I will bounce. Right. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So you write the significance of Jim Crow character is not only that this character was pregnant with a stereotypical concept of racism and white supremacy, but that he was also pregnant with an interracial democratic impulse that continues to haunt the dreams of the powerful. Right. And. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about having Vicky Bynum on your show, but the author of uh, of uh, the Free State of Jones, mm, yeah, it captures um, that spirit mm. um, where the uh, uh, empire's biggest nightmare is working class whites and blacks coming at them with guns. Yeah, that was uh, another point of uh, Nancy Eisenberg's. Um, the the point that you make throughout, and I think it's a constant point, is that the indigenous that goes by the wayside and then becomes mythos, right, becomes a myth that serves empire um, after empire has conquered the indigenous peoples and then creates myth to to say how how benevolent the the white conquest was and um, and how sad it is that the noble savage has passed. Um, but that part of your book shows that there's a a real distinction in worldview and perspective in how one views uh, life and how to live it and how performance in empire, even if we want to see some of the performance as useful and health, healthy, um, you know, things that we might say are worth paying attention to, worth watching, by contrast, the performance of the indigenous uh, is about living, uh, is about their daily lives and their rituals of cer- and ceremonial living and not entertainments, not right. time wasters or time takers or, you know, trying to forget your d- drudge of a life by being entertained by a guy tap dancing on a horse. Right, exactly. And I think, but I think it, it serves that purpose too. It's just like you make a, you make a, a bow and arrows, they're works of art right. that are going to help you eat. That's right. You you do have yes. I I I didn't want to shortchange that that there wasn't yeah. you know, beauty and 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 art in the myth in the in the ceremony itself. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and so well, I've got a I've got a paragraph here that um, 
bef- just before you called kind of jumped out at yeah. me as might be a, a way to kind of wind it down. Great, go ahead. Uh, this is on 161. After I talk about uh, the performance in the last chapter, I talk about it's called Evening Star Medicine Meets Uncle Tom, and mm-hmm. it has the minstrelsy on one hand and, and Pawnee, uh, Pawnee performances in, out on the uh, Great Plains uh, as, uh, as the foil. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, after this, uh, talking about this Pawnee performance, I say one thing is certain, the animals of the Plains people's world were an intimate part of their performances as they were an intimate part of their daily lives. These animals also provided sustenance, meaning that the animals had to be, that had to be routinely killed in order for the people to survive were given a voice and their life energy was acknowledged as a gift and a necessity to the Indians. An equivalent in Euro-American society, imperial society, might be if people were to give voice to the steers, hogs, chickens, and other animals that were routinely consumed. While there were animals used in these colonial performances, they were always secondary to a theme of conquest in a military play, or they were completely controlled by their human masters in circus performances. In the indigenous world, animals were given a voice and agency, and they wielded power that was experienced both in the physical realm and in the unseen realm of visions and dreams. The Pawnee lived their myths in the ritual performances built into their seasonal rounds. The imported colonial society had performance seasons as well, and their mythical world was presented in their performances. Hmm. So I think that, to me, kind of wraps up a big part of what this book is about, is uh, comparing those two types of worldviews. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, in there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, very good, Doug Harvey. Thanks for joining me on Interchange. Uh, thanks for having me, Doug. I appreciate it. Let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears. While we all sub sorrow with the poor. That's all the time we have for Staging the Nation. We've been speaking with Doug Harvey, author of Theater of Empire Frontier Performances in America. He's currently working on a biography of Herman Husband, a Quaker pacifist who spoke in support of the regulators and took part in the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794. We close the show with Johnny Cash's rendition of Hard Times, a 19th century parlor song written by Stephen Foster. A final example tonight of the better angels of early American culture. It implores the listener to consider the plight of the less fortunate. Next week on Interchange, it's WFHB's Fall Fun Drive, and we'll be playing a selection of our favorite clips from the last year, maybe some of the all-time classics, too. Be sure to listen next week on Tuesday at 6 p.m. for the best of Interchange. And why not call in, pledge your support of Interchange, and let us know your favorite Interchange moments. Fall Fun Drive's Best of Interchange, next Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. And Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times come again no more. 
There's a pale drooping maiden who toils her life away with a warm heart whose better days are o'er. Though her voice should be merry, it's singing all the day. Oh, hard times come again no more. It's a song, a sigh of the weary Hard times, hard times Come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times Come again no more It's a sigh that has wafted across the troubled wave. It's a wail that is heard upon the shore. It's a dirge that is murmured around the lowly grave. Oh, hard times come again no more. It's a song, a sigh of the weary Hard times, hard times Come again no more Many days you have lingered Around my cabin door Oh, hard times Come again no more Oh, hard times Come again no more